listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. So Jeff, today's episode is brought to our listeners by Doris Day. Do you have any idea why? I used to have a crush on Doris Day. I think everybody had a crush on Doris Day (laughs) of a certain age. (laughs) Yes. And, and, And why are we blessed with her sponsorship? Yeah, well, we're obviously not really getting her sponsorship, but, you know, she's saying that iconic song, Que Sera Sera, in that movie with Jimmy Stewart, the man who knew too much. And when we put this episode together today, we had no idea what we we're going to talk about. And so you called it, what shall be, shall be. And so that's what's in the URL string. So it may led me to Doris Day. And so hence, today's episode is brought to you by Doris Day. And maybe Jimmy Stewart, I guess he, he deserves a mention, maybe. Probably the best sponsors we've ever had. Absolutely. I love that movie, by the way. I always loved that movie when I was a kid. We're actually introducing a new format today, and we're going to sort of give it, this is the pilot program, the pilot version of this, of this, and we're calling it In Five Steps. So we're going to break down you know, big concepts, little concepts, and anywhere in between marketing issues in five steps. And so today we're going to break down solution architectures in five steps. And you're on the hot seat today. So I guess the first question is, what the crap is a solution architecture? What is that? What are we talking about? If it's not Doris Day. (laughs) I'm still recovering from your introduction. (laughs) Oh, gosh. I don't know if our listeners know that every one of these is just a cold opening. I I never know what's coming out of your mouth. The good news is sometimes I don't either. (laughs) (laughs) But here we are. That's where we have it. So uh, and and if you haven't seen the movie, I would suggest to our listeners, watch the movie. It's a little dated, but it's still a great story. I am excited about this format. I think this is going to be a cool format. And I hope our listeners like it because it takes all your bloviating away and gets it down to some really practical, action-oriented steps. Well, I agree. And and in working the topic, as we set it up, old rattle and pedal, right? We would talk about solution architecture and we would poke holes at all the problems with it in most most organizations and why it's broken. But we didn't always leave, we don't always leave listeners with, with directional advice. So, you know, I think what happened in the setup for this call today for listeners is we worked the topic a little bit and now we've got, you know, a structure of steps. Here's, here's five things we think you should do if this is a topic that you're struggling with right now. And you, I know you have a client struggling with this. I know we have a client that just struggled with, with this. So it's something that firms struggle with. So yeah, let's break it down. So a solution architecture is... So a solution architecture in its most simplest form is nothing more than a systematic way for organizing and communicating to the market, you know, your products and services so that a potential client can see how you can help them. Seems straightforward enough. So why does it matter? Why do we need to spend 30 minutes talking about it? And yet I think if you told me it's it's a cure to a disease. So I want to hear it. Well, we need to talk about it because so many firms get it wrong. And you know you have it wrong because you suffer from a disease that I call, I didn't know you did that itis. And I know everyone listening on this podcast today has had a client sign with a competitor for some solution that their firm provided. 
And when they ask their client, why didn't you use us for that? The client says to them, I didn't know you did that. You know, it's funny. I, I think I've, I've probably said this on the podcast, but I have this joke that I call it the length of a firm's services list on a website has an inverse relationship to the scale of the firm. So the smaller the firm, the longer the list, the list will be 30 things deep, all the things that we do. And, and, and they, they'll always tell me, Jason, we have to let everybody know we do this. If we don't tell them, they won't know we do this. And then, of course, at the other end, the mega firms have like three things. And it's like, well, the assumption is they do everything. Why, why would they not be able to do that? They can do anything you want them to do. So that's why it matters, because we're going to help you kind of solve for that. Morose? You used that word at the opening, I think. The morass of this. Morass? Yes. Morass? Morass. I mean, it. you get sucked in. And you know what the default is for a solution architecture? It's just a firm's internal lob structure. Right? Hey, this is the way we organize. You call it a lob structure? I have never heard that in my life, by the way. Oh, line of business. <laughs> yeah, but I've never heard anybody call it a lob before. Lob. Lobs in tennis, but I've never heard lobs. Anyway, yeah. People. yeah, line of business structure. And the problem with that is it's not client focused, it's firm focused. And that's the problem that most professional services firms have in marketing in general, is they tend to be internally focused, falling in love with their own solutions and capabilities. And the purpose of a solution architecture is to communicate your services or solutions, how you help in your client's language, not yours. So the issue, the issue is your clients don't know what you do because you're not speaking in their language. And instead of staying above the waterline, if you will, on the iceberg, you're going down into the depths, you know, the bottom of the iceberg where it's all hidden and nobody's really interested in that anyway. Yeah. I've had instances where, you know, clients have signed contracts and we're seven months into something and they don't actually really know what they bought. Um, <laughs> well, this is what we put in the scope. Well, I don't think I need that. Okay. And so you're a little bit kind of shocked, but it's my fault, right? It's my fault because I used language they didn't understand. Uh, you know, maybe I wasn't listening well enough or I didn't hear them, you know, whatever happens. So you have to kind of take some ownership on that. So, all right, five steps. So here's, here's where the, the rubber hits the road, right? Okay. If I think I've got an architecture problem and I have a, I didn't know you did that itis disease. And I've decided that I'm going to solve that disease and there's not an injectable to solve it real quickly or a you know breathing treatment I can take if it's a respiratory issue. It's going to take some time, right? How do I do this? So what are the, what are the five steps? How are we going to break this down? Step number one, you have to understand your current architecture and the context in which you're communicating it. So how do you understand that architecture? Probably the easiest way to see what your current solution architecture is, is to look in two places. One, what's your internal structure? Because chances mm -hmm. are you've flipped it outside. Yeah. Two, go to your website and look at your menu structure. And the way you've organized your website probably is the easiest and straightforward manifestation of your solution architecture. And look at how you've structured that. So ask yourself a couple of questions about your current architecture. Number one, 
does it reflect and align with your business strategy? Does it highlight those areas that are currently driving growth and will drive growth into the future? And does it support your brand's positioning and value that you provide? Number two, does the solution architecture... This is not step two. This is the second question you're asking. Second question. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Does the current solution architecture focus on current and future client perspectives? Yeah. Or is it, as I said, just your internal organization? You might have a really enlightened internal organization that's client-centric, but I'm going to say that you probably don't. Number three, does the current architecture reflect current industry nomenclature? Or are you speaking in your own language? So I think this requires some due diligence to go out and look at competitors and look at how they're talking about their solutions. And not that you just want to emulate your competitors, but I think by looking at competitors or industry analysts, research, you'll start to see a language that the industry understands as a whole. And I think it's important in developing a brand architecture that you don't get cut up in fads. Just because Gartner named something new doesn't mean you need to reflect Gartner's language. I think it's important to distinguish between a trend and a fad, but I think many firms get caught up in fads and say, oh yeah, we got to have this reflected because it's hot right now. So you don't want to do that. Yeah, I can relate to that. I remember 15, 16 years ago, struggling whether we wanted to call it digital marketing or interactive marketing. At the time, a lot of people still were calling it interactive. Mm-hmm. And when we were explaining what we were doing to the market, it was, it was hard to pick a t- term. And digital felt too big and consulting-like at the time, and interactive felt more like you know, an agency. And we really struggled with that. And eventually, the market sort of corrected itself and, and resolved it. It's like, oh, well, what's interactive? Probably many listeners never even heard the phrase interactive marketing. I, I really like that one a lot. You know, Is it consistent with industry nomenclature? I think that's a really good one because it helps you kind of get a sense of, to your point, will clients understand? They'll understand it if they see it other places. You know, Just like buying a car, they know what cruise control is. Yeah. You know? <laughs> they didn't know what it was at first, but now they do. And I think, it, you know, taking the time to write it down, whether you whiteboard it or throw it into a spreadsheet or something, but to capture all of it, <laughs> and I mean all of it, because it's yeah. going to be, to your earlier comments, a long list probably, and seeing it is believing it, if you will. So step number one, understand your, your current solution architecture. All right. Step two. Step two. Determine what goal you're trying to achieve with the solution architecture and the goals that you you want to achieve are one, you want to connect with your client in their language. Number two, you want to communicate how you can help. And three, you want to reinforce in the strongest terms the position you want to own in the market. I think solution architecture becomes one of the simplest and straightforward ways to carve out a market position. Mm -hmm. And when you say we are 
you know, the industry leader in X for Y companies, your solution architecture should reflect that. Okay. If step three is the driving precept, in our setup, you basically said that there is like eight driving structures that, that, that tend to be used. I don't know if, the, if there really are eight or if you just made that number up, but what are the, the prevailing structures for the organization here that get used, maybe overused? Just walk us through the options and then talk to us about how you reconcile those. So the driving precept should really clearly communicate and enable how you are going to serve the client. There are some select ones. So let me start with one that isn't always used, but I think reflects very clearly what a driving precept would look like. And that is market segment. Let's say that you decide that you're going to go to market and your solutions are going to be broken down by company size. So you would have three market segments, small and mid-sized business, mid-market, mid-market, global 1000, if you will. Yeah. And then everything that you do speaks into those market segments. Because the way you're going to communicate with a global 1000 is very different than small and mid-sized business. And if you're, if you're going to go after all three of those segments, you need to be able to, to demonstrate to the market that you serve all three, but you also need to be able to speak to those needs. You know, when you're really small, you may serve only one of those segments to specialize, but that's not necessarily true. Depending on the nature of your solution, you could serve all three of, of those segments. But I think when you when you think about the buyer in each one of those those segments, it becomes very clear that there's a different type of conversation, yeah. a different type of solution, a different way of selling into those organizations. And a different problem being solved. Yes. So different jobs to be job to be done, right? If we use the Christensen framework. Exactly. Exactly. And the solutions that you offer could be different for each one of those segments as well. So maybe I should take a step back and go through what I think the, the core approaches to brand architecture are. So market segment is one. I think solutions is a very common, although often misunderstood way of going to market. Products, services, some might argue that services and solutions are the same. I, I think they're different. Capabilities, what is that core? And I, and I would say capabilities often are lines of business oriented. You could go to market by technology, particularly those channel partners and their technology partner brands become really relevant or the platforms on which they're positioned. Industries. I think most firms lay out, you know, hey, we play in every industry because we have a client, one client at least in every industry. I think that's a big mistake that people make, but industries is a very common one as well. So I think those are some of the major ways you can organize a solution architecture. One of the things you said in the setup was that, you, you know, 
the inclination is for firms to pick lots of them or all of them or many of them. And you're saying, no, don't do that. So what's the right number? Like, I mean, you know, for me, I come back to a website navigation tool because you know, you're giving the client the ability to choose how they want to, to interact with your firm and its expertise or its solutions or whatever you choose to call it. So what's the right number? It depends. <laughs> How's that for a consultant answer? Yeah, so it's the, the classic number one consultant answer. Yeah. It's the answer to everything. Yeah, I, I think the, the right answer is three to five with three being the predominant one. I prefer and have had the most success operating in threes. The human mind can only remember so much. And there's been a lot of research done. And remember, you know, this is about curing. I didn't know you did that itis. So you want that solution architecture that is memorable. And if we know from research that the most memorable is going to be parsed out in threes, you want to work on that number. Now, probably the best one if you could do it, but most firms can't to be highly specialized around one thing. But even if you are specialized on one thing, that again could be parsed out in threes to get you to the next level of, of understanding. You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy, Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. I want to clarify the three for a second. Are you saying that like you should have no more than three precepts? So you might organize it around industries and solutions and issues simultaneously? Or are you saying no, you have to limit it to three industries under the industry bundle. It's, it's the former, right? Yes. It, yes, it's the former. Okay. Now, do you have any any recommendations on that? Let's say your industries tab has 15 industries on it. Is there a number, a maximum number you should be doing in that dimension? Meaning that if you've got that many, you need to start looking at how you bundle things in, inside of that. I think industry is kind of an outlier in yeah. in that respect, because when you get to industries, the number doesn't matter as much because the buyer is going to self-select immediately yeah. because of their own industry. So it doesn't matter as much. Where, but if there were products and services or solutions, right, then it does. Yes. Yes. Now you might argue, you know, does, is this financial services communicate to me as a buyer that you have a specialty in insurance. It may, it may not. Yeah. So you might go three levels deep on the industries to demonstrate that you do have expertise in insurance or community banks or, you know, private equity, for example. And a firm that uses like financial services as the umbrella positioning then might break that down into fintech and insurance and a bunch of other and different flavors of insurance and whatever else, right? Exactly. Um, okay. So, so I think the driving precepts, you're either going to go to market with solutions, capabilities, services or, or offerings. But I okay. think you just use two of those. And capabilities and expertise are kind of interchangeable, right? Yes. When I do this, I like the capabilities. 
I think it makes a lot of sense, particularly if they're broad based. And you see this in accounting firms, right? You're going to have audit, tax, and then something oddly called advisory or, or consulting. I think that's a clean, simple, understandable way at a high level of positioning. And so I mean, when you say no more than two, you're saying don't have product services and capabilities, all three, like find a way to get that down to two. Correct. Because that's just confusing to people. It, it, I think it's really confusing when you find a, a firm that's got products and services. I think that can be actually very confusing because then you get a little bit disoriented. It seems like that needs to be combined somehow, but that's just a two bits. I think the best way to think about this is as a matrix. Yeah. So if you have capabilities across the top and solutions down the vertical, your brand architecture becomes what do you provide? What outcome do you deliver at that intersection? At that intersection, yeah. The pinpoint. In each one of those, and I'll give I'll give you an example. I have a client that is a channel partner for technology. They specialize in integration and and automation. And when you look at the industry nomenclature, and whether it's Forrester or Gartner or the firm's own experience, when we're talking about integration and automation, there are three to five categories of capabilities that exist in that. The larger firms have broad basic uh, capabilities in that. The niche firms have narrow capabilities in that, but they're generally going to be, you know, a data and analytics capability, workflow and process capability, a automation capability, and then some kind of user experience or engagement capability. So you could have four of those. I, I might add a fifth to that, to that to get to that three to five memorable. And then how you deliver those into solutions. So now we're talking about a vertical axis. You could be providing strategy around those capabilities. You could provide implementation solutions about mm-hmm. that or even let's say managed services. So now you have this this very simple matrix of strategy solutions, implementation solutions, and managed service solutions across a broad set of capabilities. As a buyer, I can now look at that. And when I think about my issue, I see my issue as a data problem but I don't understand where I need to go. So I'm going to hone in on what can you do from a strategy perspective around data? And it becomes intuitive and understandable to me. All right. So let's just reflect where we are. So you've done an assessment of your current solutions architecture. You've set some goals for what you want the new one to look like. You've determined your driving precept, your organizational structure, and I'm just going to presume now that you've taken the next like sub-step of that and you've started to kind of like shove what you've got into them, right? So you've built, you know, you've put all of your solutions into that organizational structure. So what do you do next? Simplify, simplify, simplify. You want to avoid creating the long, long list yeah. of each and every little service that you do. It makes more sense and, and is more memorable to organize in terms, I think, at the detail level about outcomes, Okay. right? 
we're going to help you reduce costs. We're going to help you mitigate risk. We're, you know, these are the types of things that buyers are really buying anyway. So, so that's, like, that, that's like an issues structure, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. So get it as simple and understandable as, as you can. And remember, in terms of organization, think in three, high level three, you know, second level three, third level three. And that's about as much as you want at any given point. So think in terms of a very understandable outline that keeps reinforcing itself down no more than three levels. Structure embedded outline with, you know, tiers of bullets, you know, for lack of a better example. Yes. It's interesting you said that because, you know, we, we were struggling through this with one of our clients not long ago. And a lot of our clients always point back to a specific tier one firm that they really, really love the way that they've presented this. And what cracks me up is when I go to it, I can't figure out the organizational structure. It feels like it's alphabetical and then it's not. And then it starts out functional and then it's not. And so it's like, it's like super confusing. I'm like, well, why are we keep using this? And it, multiple clients have pointed to this example. And I kind of laugh about it because I'm like, yeah, it works for them, but they're a tier one global multi-billion dollar firm. And I don't even know if it's really working, but anyway. Okay. Any tips on how to simplify before we go to step five? That's hard, right? Like just any suggestions you have for, you know, how do you simplify things? I mean, you gave some good structure there which I like the embedded structure, but how do you like maybe navigate that a little bit? The, the three, three, three levels will help you a lot. Yeah. Use. I can see that. Client centric language in terms of outcome, not product name or brand name, or probably most importantly, acronym. There should be no acronyms in your solution architecture. Would you say that even te- with technology, like you, I mean, you, you can use them there, right? Like ERP or CRM, like you don't have to abandon them there if, or you, would you even suggest that? If they are industry standard nomenclature, everybody okay. knows who's coming to your website, for example, what ERP is, you can use ERP, but let's, let's yeah. say you were oh, to, you're right. you're right, you know, drop AI slash ML. Would people know what that that means? Artificial ML intelligence, ML. machine learning. Or I was thinking about to your point of if you if you organize around market segments and you went to small business and you were talking about ERP, they would look at you like you're crazy, right? Mm-hmm. That, that, that it's not. They probably know what it is, but that's not how they would describe the technology they use to run their company. They would use a different description of it because they're not an enterprise. All yeah. right, step five. Give us step five here. I know we're so so. We've simplified. What do we do now? Step five should have been step one. As well, I think, in okay. as I think about this, when you start down this path of organizing your market base and solution architecture, it is going to be an uphill political battle because the default way is to put your internal structure out as your market face. Yeah. And you're saying to your leaders, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to do it in a client-centric way. Yeah. And they're going to push back and say, well, we are client-centric. So how can you say that we're not client-centric? And they're going to want to put everything out because of all the individual fiefdoms within your firm. The bigger the firm, the more fiefdoms. And to not be manifest on the website is to 
put a given partner at a disadvantage in terms of their marketability. And, and, then, that, and when the leads come, I want them to come to my PL. Yes, exactly. So this is very much a strategic leadership discussion. This is not a marketing driven discussion. This is a strategic leadership decision that is reinforcing one of the biggest decisions that a firm will make. What do we want to be known for? What markets are we going to go after? How are we going to drive revenue and create a unique firm? So this is not marketing say, oh, well, we want to organize, reorganize our menu on the website. That's just how it manifests. But that's not the conversation we're having. We're having a very strategic one. So step five is about building alignment within the organization that our brand architecture is achieving those goals, that it's positioning the firm and its growth prospects so that the organization can grow and evolve as the performance envelope that we've talked about so often evolves and grows. We want to have a solution architecture in place that meets our needs today, but also enables that growth and evolution for the future. And it's, it's very political and it takes leadership to shepherd this client-centric and strategic perspective through the firm. Yeah, it seems to me as you're talking in step five, it's critical that you go back to the client because you've talked so much about it being client centric. And in my experience, firms rarely do that in this in this type of work. They do all the wrangling you just described to get alignment, but nobody actually says, well, why don't we go talk to some clients and see if they can understand this and this makes sense to them before they do that heavy lift of, well, let's go like, you know, reorient the whole website around this. And you know, re- change the navigation and write a bunch of new copy and, you know, months of work and and you know, a lot of money. So it seems to me like it's a good time to have that conversation. Hey, can you react to this? Does this make sense to you? You know, do you like this? Could you find your way through it? Does it reflect who we are in your eyes? Yeah. And, and I think, you know, getting back to the simplify, simplify, does it communicate in a generic, broad way that is specific enough to connect with the client, but gives us the flexibility to evolve. And that's where the art and science is because you're trying to strike a medium. It's very easy to reorganize your solution architecture. Just take out a pen and write it down using one of the driving precepts and boom, overdone. But the challenge is, does it have sustainability while meeting the needs of today? And I think that's the critical element. All right. It's a wrap. So solutions architecture in five steps. I'm sure when Doris Day sang the wonderful song, Que Sera, Sera, in the back of her mind, she thought that would actually become the anchor for a solutions architecture discussion in professional services for marketing. Guarantee you that that was on the minds of, Hitch- is that a Hitchcock movie? Anyway, I think it's a Hitchcock movie. Anyway, thank you for going on this journey. This is our pilot episode on this format, and I'm actually really excited about it. I actually thought it was really good, and we're going to be able to do a lot more like this. So have have to start somewhere. So it's a great place to start. I'm really excited about it. See you, buddy. All right. See you. 
Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher. 